Welcome to Boz to the Future, uh, which is a podcast where we try to go deeper on subjects than we sometimes are able to do when we're in kind of different environments. A lot of times when we're talking about technology, we want to cover a lot of ground quickly. We tend to go pretty broad, hit the highlights and move on. I think it's interesting is working in tech, my experience is that mostly the people are spending a lot of time on one thing and going, just really exploring it and and all the nuances around it. So I wanted to try to do a podcast around that. Uh, I am thrilled uh, to have with us uh, Ina, who is an Axios columnist, but that's not the whole story really, uh, has been uh, has a tremendous career covering technology uh, and bringing it to lots of different audiences uh, from whether it be policymakers or so-called elites. Do they people call themselves that? I don't know. Uh, down to the, the consumer tech press uh, and, and everything in between. And what I think has been interesting for me, at least, uh, is Ina's one of the people, I'm, I'm such a flatterer in these conversations, I don't mean to be, that's not my nature, by the way, who asks me the best questions, like really the questions that get to the heart of the issue. And in fact, our first deep dive today is going to be inspired by a question uh, that she asked. Uh, do you want to, one thing I've been doing with my guests is having them introduce themselves. Here's why. I can read your Wikipedia, so can everyone else. What are the things that you think a listener needs to know about you? I'm passionate about technology, and I'm passionate about how technology is changing our society, both for good and bad. I think I'm the kind of person that can open a new box and get excited by the new gadget for all its features, and also look at it and say, what are the things we need to worry about that this beholds? And I think both of those things are helpful to have as a reporter. And I've been doing it, as you mentioned, for a lot of audiences for a long time. I, um, I've covered for financial wires. I covered the chip industry when I first moved to San Francisco. Uh, I covered a range of things from Apple and Microsoft for CNET for a decade. Uh, I was with Walton Kara at All Things D and Recode, um, where we were kind of connecting it for, you know, the kind of tech inside crowd. And now at Axios, I get to write about it, hopefully for both a narrow audience that gets my newsletter, people that are interested in tech, but also for our broader audiences That's right. that aren't necessarily tech people. Yeah, it's a, it's a legendary uh, career. And you know the, the Recode piece, to some degree, it's interesting for me to look back at that time. And that was such a, it was such a bullish time. Um, so much of the coverage was the tech enthusiasm. <laughs> and it feels to some degree like we've uh, pivoted, obviously, the pendulum has swung where so much of the coverage is just the criticism. Uh, and I, I do think there's room for both. You can do, you can, it can be both. <laughs> it can be both great and terrible. Uh, and, and, and we can kind of hopefully work on the terrible things and embrace the great things and kind of continue to make progress that way. Uh, it's funny you say that because the title, the working title for uh, my last column was, uh, which ended up in having a different title. It was uh, Facebook is both great and terrible. So uh, I'm sure we'll get into that. This is where it's, it's kismet. I'm telling you, let me, I wanted to start with an observation that you actually made, um, which I thought was such a smart observation, um, which is just the, the phone in our pockets uh, are these wonderfully integrated devices. And you had commented that you felt like a lot of the innovation that we've seen the last few years, at least, um, is taking parts of what the phone does and peeling it out. Uh, you know, yeah, I see right now, like in this, people can't see. I can see uh, because it's, you're in a podcast, but 
I can still see you're wearing AirPods, you know, which is a little piece of like, Hey, yeah, we used to be able to just, we used to hold the phone up to our ears. It worked. It was cool. Now we have these AirPods or we could use you headphones. They were cool. AirPods feel better. We like them. They take a little piece of the phone and kind of take it off of the phone and put it someplace else. Yeah. Talk to me more about that observation. Cause I thought it was such a keen one. Yeah, I think we're at this really interesting place where there's definitely nothing replacing the phone today, tomorrow, next year. Um, But we are starting to imagine, what if we put some of those capabilities someplace else? What would Mm -hmm. we get if we do that? And obviously, your team's doing that in a bunch of interesting ways. AirPods were definitely a start. I think we will look back whenever Apple does introduce some whiz-bang headset, and we will be like, oh my God, I didn't realize that the watch was the mouse and input device and the AirPods were the audio device. And I think that's this fun period of experimentation where I think there's products out there, and we've talked about this, that are hiding in plain sight, that are Mm -hmm. pieces of the future that are being beta tested today. And we don't realize it because they are released as reasonably complete products. Um, which is a distinction from the past. I think in the past, the tech industry has tried to wait until it can deliver the Mm -hmm. thing. And the intermediate steps are, we're going to deliver the thing no matter how bad it is, 100% (laughs) of it. And now it's like, no, what great can we do or what pretty good can we do now that's on that pathway? And, you know, I think you guys made a really interesting choice with the Ray-Bans, similar. Like instead of, you know, HoloLens, for example, from Microsoft, is a really important thing to have out there because it is sort of the best of the augmented reality today. But not very many people are going to put that on. And it's got a lot of downsides. Whereas I think something like Ray-Ban Stories, what fascinates me about it is it says, what if we took, you know, one or two pieces and put them into something you'd actually want to wear? Or in Apple's case with AirPods, what if we just took the hearing piece and put it around there? And especially with the higher end model with spatial audio like that's Mm going to be an important part of vr and ar sound like people don't realize that ar and vr probably will be as much about sound as video if you don't get the sound right you don't have ar or vr you're exactly right spatial audio is one of those things that we're so used to it (laughs) we have spatial audio naturally (laughs) it's weird i'm wearing headphones right now so the sound of your voice is coming from the middle of my head that's a weird place for sound to come from that's not normally where it comes from um and so when it's not spatialized it it really affects memory it affects our ability to relate certainly you can't have a three-way conversation without some without cutting people off without it you've you covered so many good things i love this point about putting out features, whereas the, especially in hardware, people really wanted to knock everyone over, you know, with, with the complete product, the documentary on general magic. I just, you know, I consumed it. Uh, I was like, you know, I was, it was like, it was homework. I was like, that, that was the study of what we're trying to do. The ambition of so many companies today was in alive and well in that company 30 years ago, they had a vision that I think we still agree is likely a vision of the future that will come to pass but because they could not take the parts that were working and separate them from the parts that were dragging it down, it became a boat anchor. Um, and today's and companies really, aren't doing it. Yeah, yeah, ahead. and it's really hit a lot of companies. You know, I think again, it's really been the history of the tech industry is you know sort of you know timing is everything, and mm-hmm. timing is so much more if you if you're betting everything on the full product. You don't have to get the timing exactly right 
if you make the best product for the moment. Yeah. But if you're trying to combine everything into that all-in-one thing, you really do because then you're taking on the thing head-on. For example, if you guys were to come out or any company were to come out today with something and say this is going to be a replacement for your smartphone, well, that's a huge bar. That's a hell yeah. That's and no right. one's going to meet it. No one's yeah. going to replace the smartphone with anything other than a better smartphone today, tomorrow, next year. That's right. But you can come up with some really interesting products that help us keep our phones in our pockets more often. And that's yeah. a fascinating thing. And that's the part that the optimist in me is really excited about, about some of the things uh, that Facebook and others are developing. And, you know, I have just as long a list of things uh, that are on my list of concerns. Yeah, totally. And even when the smartphone came out, it wasn't like, it was like, we're going to replace your laptop. For many people, for many jobs the laptop used to do, the smartphone has replaced it. I use the smartphone, you know, way more often than I do my, my laptop or my desktop. They still do some things really well that I like to use them for, but the phone is the main de computing device that I use. But that wasn't the pitch day one. You know, it was it was internet of phone and music. That was that was the, the Steve Jobs pitch of of the iPhone, which we think of as starting the, the smartphone era. But it wasn't really the iPhone three, I think, that really kicked off the curve. This so the the way that we framed this when we last spoke about it, which I want to bring the audience in on, is this cycle of integration and disintegration. Um, which I thought was is such a, a, a way of looking at it. And as I've looked back at the history of computing, it's really spooky how accurate this is. You know, early on, um, these you have these these general purpose devices. So you have a general purpose, you have a laptop. It does everything. It doesn't do everything really well. You can't take it with you. It's not. It's pretty portable. It's not like phone portable. It's like pretty good. And then suddenly you have the smartphones, and like they do a couple of things way better than your laptop, just because you have them with you. Music. Well, I want it when I'm walking around the street. I don't want it when I'm just chained to my desk. Um, you know, the internet. Like, yeah, I want to be able to like ask a question when I'm at a bar, not have to wait till I get home and then I'll email you about it. Um, a phone. Like, yeah, that makes sense. So it, it like it just took these little jobs that were like important jobs that we cared about and pulled them out. And then over time, it just added more and more and more and more, and then became integrated. So now the smartphone is this tightly integrated device of its own, um, and it rode this entire S curve. Uh, up and now we're at the top of that s curve and the phone that we had three years ago is like the phone that we had three years from now um the one that we will have three years from now and it's awesome but there's some things that we can do better uh you know and so yeah you've got your your airpods we can do we can do audio a little bit better yeah you got your ray-ban stories you can we can do we can make the photos a little more convenient make it a little easier to take those photos you get your watch this little this this disintegration from the phone, which does everything, but because it does everything, it has to have trade-offs, some things it does better than others, some things it doesn't do the most it possibly can, into these more special purpose things. Um, and the theory, I suppose, and we don't know this for sure, is that they reconverge at some point into a new integrated whole, a new integrated system. Now, that integrated system doesn't have to be owned by a company. The web wasn't, right? The web became this integrated system through protocol. So it doesn't, it's not like that has to be one company or, or series of companies that are doing the same thing. This is powerful stuff. But what's crazy to me is no one, you're right, it's in plain sight. How do like no one no one is seeing it? Like, why is it so hard for us to see these trends? Like, why is it hard for people to see these trends that are happening, you know, and the and the cycles around them? Um, you know, I think it's one of these things that, you know, the big leaps take longer to come to fruition. Yeah. And so we see it and then it isn't there immediately and we move on to right, the next yeah. shiny object. The hype cycle gets it. Was, it. 
it was funny. I um I dug up this clip and I I've known a lot of the trends. You know, I remember uh when you know the Surface touchscreen, the original big table mm-hmm. that Microsoft oh, yeah. did came out, and the iPhone. You know, at the time we looked, oh, you know, um, Jefferson Hahn and others had been showing multi-touch in different ways. Uh, you know, for twenty years, totally. it just wasn't ready for the technology. And I came across this thing the other day, and I threw it in the bottom of the newsletter. Somebody's idea of a touch screen in 1985, they had nothing more than a green screen computer. They didn't even have graphics, <laughs> and they were envisioning the touch screen. Um, totally. You know, they were using a light sensor around the, the edge of this green screen. But the, the smartest people can usually figure out where things are going, but the technology to make it yeah. a reality is often so much more complicated. And I think that's where we're at. I mean, I think there's general consensus, and we've written about this a bunch this year, that some sort of augmented reality glasses are likely to be the next mm-hmm. big sort of mobile platform. But I think there's equal agreement that you're not going to have something that's as light as, for example, Ray-Ban Stories, but as powerful as HoloLens with all-day battery life that a consumer can afford. That's a several, you know, that's a half-decade yeah. proposition to get there. And the consumer's ability to hold on to that being the next big thing, but not being ready this Christmas or next, yeah, that, that's tough. And at some point, people will give up on it. And I, I can't wait for the first person to declare that the uh ar glasses are dead or do yeah totally uh, you know hopefully it won't be me uh, i'll put a little sticky note to remind <laughs> myself that it's no, still the, coming yeah the hype cycle you know everything wants to has like goes through the this tremendous excitement phase and then it turns out the technology is not ready and that trough of disillusionment as we call it can last a long time and you can go through many kind of false starts on the process uh, let me add to that not only do I think the technology sometimes isn't ready yet, which is certainly true, and it's worth digging in more on that, the market sometimes isn't ready yet either. Um, you know, that's been the big realization for us working on, uh, you know, on Quest 2, our, our yeah. virtual reality. I was going to say VR has had so much of this hype cycle and disillusionment. It's uh, crazy. You know, it was, yeah. Yeah. And that overinvestment in content. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And now I'm sure it's hard to get anyone to invest in it. And it's like, wait, we've got we've got the device, and everyone's stuck <laughs> we, at home. We have it. We have it. No, it was kind of crazy. The hype cycle market interplay was such that, like, you know, people like who aren't techies are like, hey, yeah, isn't VR like a thing that was dead 20 years ago? And I'm like, it was. It's cool now. And and, and there's an interplay here too. The reason VR broke through when it did. Um, with Palmer Lucky and the early Oculus founders is the mobile phone supply chain. You know, we never had to have super tiny high-res displays before. So you ended up with these massive optics that, you know, they used to call the sort of Damocles, you know, you had to be tethered to the ceiling. If it broke, you were dead. Like now we have the cell phone supply chain of powerful mobile processors um, and high-res small screens, which you can suddenly make a breakthrough on. And with the Quest 2, we feel like we've done that. Um, but like it, the market and the technology both have to show up at the same time. It's even, I would say, and we talked about this, um, a little bit when we were talking about Ray-Ban stories, part of the goal of Ray-Ban stories is to help people start to develop this understanding that like you can take functionality, camera, microphones, uh, you know, audio and untether it from the phone so that in a, in years, some number of years in the future, when AR does happen, 
hopefully we're just adding a screen to an already smart device as opposed to introducing an entirely new category of integrated device, which is just feels so daunting today. Well, and I know we're going to get into more into this later, but you know, to me, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up, and we as a society have to figure out what to do with that. Of course. Um, what yeah. it means to have something smart on our face. And, you know, as you and I have talked about, it's a mix of, you know, what are the expectations of the people creating the products? What are the expectations of the people buying the products? What are the laws? What are the rules? What are the norms of etiquette? Yeah, what are the expectations um, and, of the people not buying the product? <laughs> like, what, what are their expectations? Yeah. That's huge. And, you know, I don't think people realize we actually did have that with smartphones. Right. Uh, there wasn't mm-hmm. a moment. But, you know, we sort of have figured out, you know, there's some places in government, in business that are so secret, they lock all the phones outside. That's right. Um, because they have cameras. They have powerful cameras. Yeah, um, totally. And we've given up privacy. And I don't think the companies and others really acknowledge there has been a trade-off. You know, you look at something like um, Samsung has some really powerful zooms on its phones. There's some not so great uses of that technology that have become much more attainable, much less, you know, no one's buying something. You know, you don't, in the olden days, you know, if you caught someone with, you know, a telescope, and binoculars just, looking at just the neighbor, a telescope like staring in the right? You yeah. knew what they were doing. Yeah. When you see someone with a smartphone, you can't conclude they're a peeping tom, although they could have used it in that, in that way. way. Yeah, yeah. It's this is one of the, it's a really tricky balance. So the interplay we've talked about integration and disintegration and the cycles there, the the technology and market catching up to one another. There is this interplay that you're bringing up here of the interplay between social norms and expectations and the technology itself. And the truth is the pace of technological progress has accelerated. And at some point you worry like, hey, can our social norms keep up? But we do seem to have done it well with smartphones. We seem to have a pretty stable relationship as a society with smartphones and what they're capable of. Um, And we have some standards, like you said, around that. Um, but that, that is a real process. It takes time. You don't just, you can't just show up with the technology and suddenly society knows when it's okay, when it's not okay. Laws and regulations are an important part of that. Um, and like the technology is an important part of that, but it's not the whole part of it. Some of it is we as a society have to decide, what do we trust other people? What technology can I be trusted with? I want to have, I'm a photographer. You know, it's one of my favorite hobbies. I want to have a a phone that has a sweet telephoto lens on it because I'm going to use that. And I love that. Am I allowed to have that? <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's like, am I trusted? Does society trust me to have that? Do I need a license for that? Like what, you know, we, we do have to have these dialogues to make progress. And it does, it feels like we're not doing them very explicitly. We're kind of stumbling our way into these sometimes. And I would say we're doing a better job with hardware related advances yeah, than with right. software and machine learning. So You know, when a new piece of hardware comes out, you know, we talk about its specifications. If it's got a long zoom lens, that would get talked about. Right. And I think we actually do a much better job. I think where we do a terrible job is understanding the power of today's machine learning and processing and systems. You know, if we really understood it, we wouldn't have, you know, three million people answering the basically memes that are basically 
answering security questions. Yeah, and I see them right. every day. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you. this is a thinly veiled, right. you know, attempt to get your age. This is a thinly veiled attempt to get your hometown. Um, and that's the, you know, the lowest level of it. You know, I think I think we, you know, and I see it in the hearings that that have been had over the past year or so looking at at big tech. They're really looking at tech as it existed half a decade or more ago. I'm like that those aren't even the real issues today. Right. Well, and and it's actually it is very interesting that we're back into a hardware cycle now whereas we spent really the last two full cycles, you know, it was it was a the app cycle. I guess it's it alternating. It was the app cycle was really a software cycle. Smartphone cycle really was a hardware cycle. The web was a software cycle. Yeah. You know, so we, we I guess we do have more of an alternation there. Um, so we're entering a hardware cycle, which is good and I think healthy from a scrutiny standpoint. And a lot, but a lot of that hardware is there to power this kind of software to make your life yep. easier, to have assistance, to have agents who can help you with things. And we're going to love it, you know. And I would add, we've got to stop saying that technology is good and bad. Therefore, like right. that's become an excuse for therefore it doesn't matter. And that's the wrong answer. Right. The right answer is technology is good and bad. Let's fully examine all the ways that this potential technology could be used for harm and do everything prudent to minimize right. the harm or um, make it unattractive or XYZ to deal yeah, this, with it. I, I love this perspective. I think it's right. You know, it's, it's you can't, if you, if you go to harm prevention, if you want to prevent all harm, you end up in like Asimov's three laws of robotics. Everyone's like locked in their homes <laughs> They're not, they're not allowed to leave. We're already locked in our homes. It'd be fine. That's a fair point. Yeah, they, <laughs> someone, so nature took care of that for us. Um, if you go to, but if you go to harm reduction, there's tremendous benefit that you can have by applying scrutiny and and putting creating incentives for people to continue to advance these these technologies. Um, there's another piece here too, which I think is interesting, um, which is you talk about the regulators and you know how do they stay on top of this? Like I said, the technology is moving faster than the public discourse at times. Regulators are really tuned into public discourse, as you'd expect. They're public servants. Um, that's those are related. I also wonder. You go back. The, the software side is just it doesn't have an analog. I understand in theory how a camera works. I don't. I understand it very well. The average person uh, is like, yeah, like I understand how like images work, so I get it. Yeah, machine learning. There isn't like a natural language way <laughs> to have an intuition about it. People who are truly world experts on machine learning are often surprised by machine learning. <laughs> you know, so yeah. so um, it's hard to have an intuition there. And there's a, there's a literacy that young people have, which is is a is, you know a comp- an under an, an intuitive understanding of algorithms and how they affect things. But that you have to bring that literacy to more people um, and, and fast to, to catch them up on the status quo. Yeah, I mean, I think media literacy broadly, and mm-hmm. with that, I would put technology literacy. You know, is going to be a vital piece, and really understanding what technology is capable of and being as sophisticated as you as an individual can be is so important. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at things like you know robocalls, which have been a super annoyance. Um, for my generation and the generation younger can be devastating, uh, typically for the older generation. Um, and it's getting so hard. Like, and I know the technology is going to be there. Like right now there's some really easy clues that something is a robocall, at least easy for me, Mm -hmm. hard for my parents, easy for me, but boy, we're not very far from where 
you know, that machine learning plus all that information you've willingly given up uh, by answering those memes lets that robocall be so much more targeted. Um, sound like a human being, know a couple more things about you. And it's going to be so hard. And the burden is going to be so heavy on the consumer to be like, how do I know this is who they say they are? How do I this, know this is true? Totally. And, and we're the... failing. We're failing as a society <laughs> around the, the pandemic. So I know we're not set up to do well with the next challenge. So, and and, and the, um, the ch- one of the big challenges that we face is the, the best tools we have to fight these things are these centralized machine learning things. But now you have to have like a central authority who has even more data. It's like, it's a data arms race, right? Like the central authority has to have even more data than the scammers have to identify when the scammers are trying to scam you. Uh, and, and so there is a question of like, who do we trust? How much can we trust them? Great, now they have that information. I'm getting less spam calls. There's less of a chance that, uh, you know, elderly or vulnerable people will be scammed. But now there's more of a chance that government subpoena is, is accessible. It, the, I do worry we, we sometimes we just miss how tight these trade spaces are. Yeah. Where it's like, no, I you think know, you're right. Like, you know, when when we say we don't trust company X or company Y. Well, who do you hand that power to? You, you can know, give it to the government. If you hand it to the government. <laughs> You know, that's historically not been a good bet either um, when we look at the history of governments. Governments um, around the world, seeing, at least, yeah. yeah. We've done pretty well in the U.S., but like, around the world, it's, it's a, <laughs> a mixed bag. Yeah, a mixed I mean, bag. even the last okay, decade okay, okay, in a the mixed U.S., <laughs> it's a mixed bag. Uh, I would say, you know, certainly from, you know, the 60s on, uh, you know, the government has used surveillance in even in this country. Sure. Um, but again, I, it's not like I trust you know, companies individually to act in my interest. It's why I come back to media literacy. You know, maybe we need um, other types of nonprofit coalitions that are groups of consumers banding together that are some force that we don't have currently. I don't mm. know what the answer is. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I know it's a challenge. I mean, yeah, basically, if you're going to put this technology in the hands of people, you know, they're like, we, as you've said, like the technology itself, set it aside. What are the implications? What becomes possible now that it's in the hands of people? We are broadly a set of societies uh, on this planet who generally empower individuals. We generally, when we have technology, it, we try to get it to into the hands of people. They do mostly great, good things with it. And then we try to police the bad things. And it just feels like that's, we're behind on that. Like we've, we're just delayed on that. Like, you know, <laughs> Cars are bad. Guns are bad. Pick a favorite thing. Uh, you know, high fructose corn syrup. Pick your favorite, you know, thing. But let me pose you this one then. Okay, so we say, let's invite regulation. Let's invite smart regulation. Let's find things that have some enforceability, that have some penalty that can be associated with them. That's a power that we give the government in other areas. It's not unreasonable to give it to them now. One thing that I think about often is that if the internet, the foundational protocols of the internet, TCPIP, if those were invented today, we would try to make them illegal. <laughs> uh, like, I don't, you know, I think GDPR was written after they existed. So it was written with the premise that they would continue to exist. You know, trying to regulate this technology in anticipation of it, as opposed to once it's there and affecting our lives, is, is it's, it's its own recipe for us to forego a lot of opportunities to advance human civilization. I mean, I think the good news for people who, 
take your perspective on that is we generally don't like we're generally not (laughs) regulating technology before it gets here. Like at most, the closest I can think of is like, you know, bans on facial recognition that have come in the early stage, but not before the technology. But I do think your point is well taken. And I think we have to bring up like this is the time to bring up actually, you know, this is happening everywhere, including in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, We are really seeing technology benefiting some more than others. You know, we've talked for a long time about the digital divide as just who has internet access and who doesn't, who has broadband access and who doesn't. Uh, I think we need to broaden our definition of that and really look at, you know, who's being made more vulnerable technology, especially as we're inventing these new platforms. I'm talking also about who's benefiting disproportionately from the technology. In general, I feel like we are seeing the classic divisions of society not broken down by technology, but often uh, oh, interesting. patternized and exacerbated by the technology. I think if you look at, yes, are there are there people from underrepresented groups who you know made a fortune or become famous through technology? Absolutely. But if you look at the degree of harm to which um, women have to place themselves at to use technology versus men, you know, women have to invite a higher level of harassment with every new platform, with every new piece of technology. It's often used against people of color more than it's to their benefit. Um, LGBTQ community, you know, the internet has been incredibly positive in, in very concrete ways. It allowed, if you were the only gay person or the only trans person Mm -hmm. in your community, suddenly you had access to information and other people. It's hard to describe how powerful that is. At the same time, uh, the degree of harassment and bullying that has been subjected upon the LGBTQ community online, the degree of harms is also very real. And I think, um, you know, the the piece that I would say was the most eye-opening for me on this, because it wasn't a group that ever gets attention, was Several years ago, uh, Nellie Bowles, I believe, did this piece for The Times looking at how technology was harnessed by domestic abusers. Um, And I still believe that piece should be required reading for anyone developing a new piece of technology because you absolutely need to think about every new piece of technology with this use case in mind. How could one person in an abusive relationship use this piece of technology to further their abuse, to further trap somebody? And suddenly it's a whole new perspective. And I look at that when I think of any new piece of technology, that's something in my checklist now. And again, I think too often as an industry, we haven't. The question has been, can we build it? Not should we? And then in terms of the harms, let's make some effort at it, but it hasn't been a priority. I'm excited, I'm excited because this is our first real disagreement. I, that's not totally fair. Particularly, I thought Nelly's piece was really excellent. I agree with you. Um, that was you know widespread, widely read um, uh, in the technology community. I think I don't. I don't agree with your characterization that it's like can we build it, not should we build it. I don't. I think that's not fair at all. I think we absolutely are asking should we build it. I do think what comes out in the disagreement here is like just the magnitude. You are clearly speaking a truth when it comes to harassment online. I'm not totally confident on um, that that this has been entrenching existing divisions. Um, I actually think some of the harassment comes from the erosion it's had from the power that some segments of society had over other segments of society previously. Um, the political gains from people who previously had no platform to organize seem like incredibly salient and important. 
um, their ability to organize. Um, I also think there's like really much more common intangible benefits here. You know, we've experienced uh, broadly, especially in the United States, at least uh, a collapse in local communities, um, uh, in part as the church uh, has become less of a center of, of, of local life. And we're seeing things like groups, whether it be on Facebook or Discord, start to fill in gaps that otherwise aren't there. No surprise that a journalist and a technologist have slightly different calculus on how they weigh the cost-benefit. You and I certainly agree, of course, as we've done this whole thing, the technology exists, there are harms and there are benefits. Can we keep the benefits while addressing the harms? And that is the work that we're doing. And I very much agree with you that the work that we were doing to address harms in advance was weak before. It was bad. I I don't think that anyone in in technology wasn't asking, should we do it? I think they were undereducated on what they were doing. And I think that's not a, not a novel critique. And not all the right um, people I know. were in the room. There are that's so right. many products have come out sure, in the history of that's Silicon right. Valley that if there'd been one person of color in the room would have come out differently. If there'd been one woman in the room would have come out differently because anyone could have told you. Right, um, right, right. And that's true of smaller communities too. Um, you know, the disability community, if you look at it as a whole, is huge. But huge. if you look at yeah. any one disability, that's right. it's much smaller. So products come out where accessibility isn't at the forefront and they miss an entire group of people. Um, But I do think, I do think it's the case that if we had a more representative group making the decision of, should we, we would have different outcomes. This is right. So I, I think representation has improved, not tremendously, but it has improved. That's a, that's part of it. But just like you said, like you read that piece from Nelly and you added it to your checklist, that's happening in tech companies too. Like you read that piece and then you add it to your checklist and eventually your checklist gets more and more robust. And I think there's a, there's a lot of critique. Like I said, it's not a novel critique that people have levied that, hey, here you got all these guys, you know, use me as an example, undereducated on ethics. That's not actually true. We now have built up a lot of, not just the, the engineers themselves have built up the knowledge, but also you hire the, tr- the right people, user researchers, people who are sociologists, people who are trained in the way that these things are going to have effects, not just on individuals, but also on sections of society. Um, and uh, the other part we do is we try to talk about them more openly earlier, which is a huge deal. Because it turns that's out a, that's you, you will hear it from the communities. Is. You will hear from the communities that are going to be affected by it. Face recognition you brought up earlier is a great example where we were talking about it a year ago or two years ago. Obviously, there's tremendous uh, you know, anxiety about its use and abuse. It's understandable. And I've been very clear. I'm not going to unilaterally move on face rec. We don't, we're, you know, until society has arrived on a set of standards, norms, practices, laws, and regulations, like I'm, yeah, I'm comfortable, uh, you know, I, we should, we should let society work on that. Like it shouldn't be a tech company that moves unilaterally there. And I think it's a really good example um, that you brought up earlier. Actually, you, you brought up something else here, which I think is such an important piece. Um, and I want to pivot us to our second deep dive, which is on digital expression. Um, I'll tell a short story. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. And, you know, maybe in the future, uh, fashion and expression will homogenize because it does feel like it's disproportionately burdensome on some segments of society. Um, what's happened is the opposite. It feels like in the physical, in real world, we've actually, like the punk movement was right. Like actually people are expressing themselves way more richly than they were when I was growing up. Um, you know, like my, my son is wearing nail polish to school. That's totally normal. Uh, like so many of his other friends do. That was like weird when I was growing up, toxic masculinity, what's up? Uh, it's like totally fine now. There's way more expression happening. Then of course you go digital and there's even more room for expression. It's just, it's a it's an absolute playground. 
And this is such an important part of how we relate to the world, not just the people around us, but the entire world around us, how we express ourselves. It feels like we are headed for a very interesting time uh, in terms of how people shape their own identities, especially as it relates to digital spaces. It's a little bit today on, yeah, what's in your Facebook profile? Which Twitter, you know, profile pic did you pick? Like, what's your, what, what's in your Insta, you know, uh, profile versus what's in your stories? But it feels like with the, the promise of the metaverse, a digital space where you're potentially embodied and can be anything you want to be, it feels like an incredibly rich space that we're moving into in terms of how people would express themselves. Um, what do you think is... What's the implication of this? Does it does it play back into the physical world? Is it just do is do people completely escape to that world? Um, do you think we'll see uh, more you know types of expression that become kind of uh, I don't know identities like people integrate into their identities? I'm I'm very curious about this. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see the potential for more of a digital trying on experience. I mean, I feel like that's what the digital realm one of its most enticing propositions has been for a long time. Um, you know, it started, you know, even in the text-based internet, um, you know, you could be mm-hmm. whoever you wanted to be. Sure. You might not be able to visually represent it. Um, but, you know, we haven't... And then reverse integrate right. it into your real... Like, so you would you would try it out digitally. It's right. cheap. And then you can reverse integrate it into the physical world. But, you know, that's always only gone so far or it feels to me like that's right it's true but or it's true to a certain degree um but it hasn't dramatically changed identities nearly as much as the the value mm-hmm. of the internet in speeding communications which has rapidly yeah. transformed identity and that to me huge acceleration uh, in identities but they're mostly based in the real world but communicated online so finding so you put out a little little beacon and you find a community and that moves quickly and you know people are able to find each other i mean we've talked a lot about the harms of technology i mean you know the great thing about the you know this level of communication we have is you know again you might be the only person you know of in your physical community into whatever and whatever covers a tremendous amount yeah. of human experience. And, you know, we have the tools today to find other people like us to share ideas. You know, I think of the recent identity movement, yeah. you know, um, you know, if you look how long the modern women's rights movement took, how long the civil rights movement has taken to get where it is, not that we don't have a lot further to go in both of those movements. But then you look at, you know, uh, the gay rights movement, trans rights, you know, a bunch of other communities have come on. And, you know, I do think the amount of time between a community identifying itself and sort of carving out a piece of society has shrunk. But I do That's think right. technology's role has mainly been around um, helping those people find each other. Again, there's a limited amount of try on. You know, I remember a billion years ago when I was first figuring out what transgender was, there were news groups. There wasn't even the modern internet. There was <laughs> sure. alt transgender. And, you know, it literally was, you know, I, there was, I found other trans people at my Midwestern small college that, you know, didn't exist. And I even found the one closeted trans person at my college 
via that because they weren't <laughs> out in any way, shape, or form except on this news group. And I do think the metaverse Amazing. Yeah. holds some potential there, but I don't know. You may have a better sense. When I look at the metaverse, I have a hard time knowing whether it's going to look more like uh, a scene out of Wally or Ralph Breaks the Internet uh, yeah. or Ready Player One. You know, <laughs> I think there are these different conceptions, which I think in some ways is good. It helps us kind of see, you know, the, sci-fi has done a good job of helping us um, have mental models of how things could look. Yeah. Um, but I don't yet have that sense of, of whether it's an accelerant yeah. to identities, you know, or, you know, the breakdown of identity, for example, or, you know, I think the one thing you point out, right. it's unlikely to lead to more homogenization. It just doesn't. No, that's, and this seems, I don't know, in the nineties, it just felt like, man, everything was fringe or mainstream and mainstream was winning. And the punk movement was like this re reaction to that. And at the time, it just seems so almost like, you know, it was fringe. It just seems so hard to imagine. I think it was right. Like, I almost think like, like steampunk and cyberpunk and all these like kind of dystopian things, set aside the dystopia, fashion being just like more individual seems likely. And perhaps we were just like all consequences of an industrial era where, you know, everything was mass produced and that was what was cheap and affordable and good. And now we actually have the technology to customize and to like do things richer. And then when you move to digital space, it's going to be even more of that. And I think it's awesome. I think it's a good thing. We do have an active internal debate because we're also we're working on codec avatars, which are super lifelike digital avatars that really look um, incredibly accurate. And of course, we also have what we would call expressive avatars. Yeah, you know, uh, Pixar or Wreck-It Ralph or whatever. Pick a favorite thing. Um, and there's like a legitimate debate internally over which is going to be more popular. Because I think there will be environments where we want to be um, ourselves, uh, you know, and really try even in a digital space to present um, at least as perhaps a slightly idealized form of our actual self at that moment. Um, but I, I, of course there's also gonna be, and then yeah, does, or, and do you, does it fragment? Do I end up just having lots of identities because it's so much in the real world, it's so hard. I can't just like show up one day um, and one identity is like a suit guy. Then the next day I'm like a track, jogger guy the next day i'm like a you know shorts and t-shirt guy that's like that's a little bit jarring yeah I mean, I, but like in digital I'd spaces be sad if we didn't have that you know i i must say it'd be I've sad really right yeah totally a, i have an eight-year-old and he's really into animal crossing um and one of the things i yeah. love is they just have a tremendous range of ways to express yourself yeah. and you changing them is as easy as you know going to your house and opening your wardrobe and um, I really enjoy that. I enjoy the way, what it does for me as an adult. I enjoy, he gets to explore at no cost, no social cost, all these different things. I would love to see yeah, love that, that be part of the metaverse um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a metaverse where um, the proper you know, safety mechanisms are also in place, where where it really is safe That's right. to experiment. Um, this is so cool. This is, these are all the things where, you know, I mean, not novel observation. The internet is a thing that drives costs to zero. I'm always amazed at how many new costs I'm discovering that I didn't even know I was paying. Identity. Yeah, you have to like buy the clothes. There's a physical cost and you have to like change. And like, it's, it's tremendous. You like, grow hair out, not grow hair out. Like, and there's limitations. And the internet like has the potential to remove a lot of those 
you can cover a lot more ground. I might, I, you know, I might be sartorially more interesting if I had had access to uh, a metaverse <laughs> growing up um, with all the appropriate controls and protections, as you point out. Um, all right, we are low on time. Actually, this has been, the, the, I think, the longest one yet because it's such a good conversation. Every time I talk to you, you are just on point. Thank you for joining us. We're going to do a lightning round of questions. Uh, in your in your Axios HBO episode, you talked about having three phones. Do you still have three phones with you Not at, all, at times? all times? I mean, I have to admit, Pokemon Go was was the driver, certainly from two to three. Okay, okay. Um, but I do like to have a bunch of different devices. It is very rare um, that I don't have multiple devices. Um, I have two phones with me. I'm in a short trip to Seattle. Uh, I have two phones with me, but I also... Pack, so you pair yeah, down you for know, a trip. Respect two-day that. trip, yeah. so two phones. Uh, <laughs> I have the Switch so that I can play Animal Crossing uh, with my kid, which is awesome, um, I when I was it. covering the Olympics. That's awesome. So um, that's that's kind of you know one device. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love trying, you know, as I say, I love technology. I love trying out whatever the new thing is. I loved your Olympics coverage, first of all. It was, that was so awesome that you got to do that. I'm a huge Olympics fan. Actually, Olympics was like, it's a huge community of Olympics fans um, at Facebook. What was your favorite uh, event that you got to, to My go favorite experience? experience was the women's park skateboarding uh, because That's they awesome. were, one, just phenomenal athletes. They were also mostly teenagers or younger there were some 12 and 11 year olds incredible Um, but the thing that made it the most incredible was they were there for themselves and each other they Mm -hmm. were supporting each other when somebody fell or had a bad thing they were the others were right there to lift them up not just their country mates uh they were friends they were competing they wanted to win but they were a community and it was amazing to watch even though it was like 100 degrees and 100 degrees 100 percent humidity but that was that was that was probably yeah. the highlight uh, <laughs> among many many highlights that is such a cool story and I, I i only obviously watched from tv it was true of the men's event as well they just like the guys when they when they fell and they like dashed their hopes they were smiling they put it out there everyone came up to give a hug you know it was it was a, it was such a cool vibe uh in that sport um my son shortly thereafter decided to try skateboarding and broke his leg. So he is now also playing a lot of Nintendo <laughs> Switch. He's fine, everybody. But, but he's also getting to play a little Nintendo Switch uh, lately. Uh, all right, I want to close it up. Uh, Ina, you have a newsletter. How can people find you so they can f- follow along with all the brilliant insights that you have on the industry and more? Fortunately, at Axios, we're all about making it easy. So if you go to getlogin.axios.com, it'll be pre-checked for you. All we ask for is an email address. It's free. Um, and I'll be in your inbox. You can also find me at Ina Freed on Twitter. And I'm sharing my observations on tech, sports, LGBTQ stuff, Legos, what have you. I love it. Thank you all for listening. This has been Boz to the Future. You can enjoy it wherever you enjoy podcasts. Leave me your thoughts and feedback. As always, I am at Boz Tank on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find me there. Thank you for tuning in and I will see you next time.